Would you turn with me in your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians 15? 1 Corinthians 15, as we look at, at how Paul relates the importance of the resurrection to the church in Corinth. Last Sunday evening, we actually looked at this letter in terms of the Lord's Supper and how Paul is addressing the way that they were participating in the Lord's Supper and, and how uh, they're, they were maintaining the class distinctions of the culture outside the church walls. And Paul said this shouldn't be. There's equality at the foot of the cross. And, and Paul continues then to go on and teach them about equality and, and thinking about the roles of, of people within the church, the different body parts, and that one should not be raised uh, above another. Or the spiritual gifts, that, one, that, that some of the spiritual gifts shouldn't, shouldn't be lauded over others. And Paul's dealing with all of these issues in Corinth, and then he saves the most important for last. 1 Corinthians 15, where he gets into the resurrection and the absolute importance of understanding and believing in the resurrection for our life and for our eternal life. So I'd like to have us look at that. We're going to read just the first 23 verses. Actually, uh, it's a very long chapter, and it's all really about the implications of the resurrection. And so I'm going to stop at verse 23, but I'd invite you sometime today to go on and continue to read that story and what Paul says about the resurrection and how it impacts our lives. But for this morning, verses 1 through 23 of 1 Corinthians 15. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain." For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I'm the least of the apostles, did not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ... We are to be pitied more than all men. 
But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep in him. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. We'll conclude our reading at that point. Would you join me in prayer? Holy Spirit, we pray that you would take this, these words of Paul, meant for a particular congregation at a particular time, that you would take these words and that you would apply them to us, that you would help us to better understand the importance of your resurrection, and most of all, to strengthen our faith that we serve a living Savior. We pray it in his name. Amen. Easter is a great Christian holiday. It's, it's a celebration of new life, a, a celebration that Jesus arose and is our living Lord. But let me ask you, what's so great about that? What, what difference does it make in our lives? I hope you answer all the difference in the world. But I realize there might be some today that are not answering that way. Some may be asking the question, so what? So today, on Easter Sunday, I want to look at the very heart of the Christian faith. Why do we do what we do? Why do we believe what we believe? Why does Jesus and his resurrection make a difference? These are serious questions. Because if we don't believe what we are celebrating on Easter Sunday, we might as well close these doors down of this church and, and never come back here. Paul said as much to the church in Corinth. After all Paul's talk regarding what it means to be a church, he gets to the heart of the matter in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, but now brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. And then he gets to the heart of it. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. This is the very heart of the Christian message that was preached throughout the New Testament. very heart of the Christian message, which, which Paul receives and passes on of, as of first importance, of primary importance. Three things. Christ died for our sins, meeting the demands of God's justice for us. He was buried a verification that he really died for us. And he was raised on the third day, confirming that right relationship that he has given with us to, to us with the Father. This is the very heart of the Christian faith. It's also the great divide. If you believe and accept this for your own life, then you are a Christian. If you don't believe and accept this for your life, then you're not a Christian. It's as simple as that. But apparently some in Corinth 
false teachers that have been undermining Paul's teaching are telling them that there is no resurrection of the body. Which Paul says, think about the logical conclusion of that. That means even Christ has not been raised. Now we don't know exactly who these, these false teachers are and what, what background they come from. Perhaps they come from a Jewish upbringing. Remember that some Jews, such as the Sadducees, believe there was no such thing as a resurrection of the dead. Maybe they came from uh, with a philosophical slant, like Plato or other philosophers who would say this is impossible, or maybe even a scientific slant. Resurrections just can't happen physically. But whatever reason behind their preaching, their teaching, Paul needs to correct this thinking immediately. And so after reminding them of the gospel basics, he's taught them that Christ died, was buried, and raised according to the scriptures. And after reminding them of the various witnesses to Jesus' reappearance, he says at one time he came to 500 of them, most of whom are still living. In other words, you can go ask them. If you don't believe me, you ask them about their encounter with the living Jesus. But after all of this, Paul cuts to the chase in verses 12 through 19. There Paul reminds them, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. If Christ has not been raised, then we are liars before God and men. If Christ has not been raised, then we are still in our sins. And we have no hope for the future, which makes us the most pitiable of people. Paul says, everything is at stake. But then he returns to his point in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 to 23. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own turn, Christ the firstfruits, and then when he comes, those who belong to him. So notice, Paul has, has hit this word twice that we may not be that familiar with. Firstfruits. Jesus is the first fruits. Jesus has been raised and he is the first fruits of the resurrection. What does that mean? Over this, this whole year so far, and now concluding that today, we've been looking at the Jewish cultural background of Jesus, the Old Testament background of Jesus, and, and what kind of light that can shed on different parts of his life. And now I want to look at one more and that, how that idea of first fruits is such a key phrase of key importance for Paul when he talks about the heart of the Christian faith. And it was also one very important in the Jewish culture. So what does it mean that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection? Paul's reminding him that God himself declares this the heart of the Christian gospel. God prepared his people in a unique way back in the Old Testament. Early on, he gave them seven feasts to celebrate his goodness. But these seven feasts, little did they know, were also to prepare them for their coming Messiah, to prepare them 
for Jesus. There are the three early spring feasts that we're going to focus our attention on this morning, then a later spring feast called Pentecost, and then the fall feasts that deal with the Jewish New Year, Rosh Hashanah, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, and then the Feast of Tabernacles, their great Thanksgiving feast. We're not going to focus on the last four, but I want to focus on the first three. But all of these feasts, in some way or another, point ahead to Jesus. Each of the feasts Israel celebrated every spring was God's tutorial to the gospel message. Each parallels and points ahead to Jesus' crucial threefold work on our behalf that Paul has just talked about. His death, burial, and resurrection. And what's more, they don't just point ahead to him, but God actually had Jesus do that work. Die, be buried, and be raised on the very days that Israel was celebrating the feast, pointing to those redemptive actions. What are those feasts? Well, first there's the Passover. The Passover happened on from Thursday sundown to Friday sundown. Just a note about the Jewish day. The Jewish day always started at sundown. So on Thursday, we call that Maundy Thursday, on Thursday at sundown, that was the beginning of Passover. And so after sundown, that's when they had their Passover meal together. And it continued on till Friday sundown. That was in, uh, always on the month Nisan, the day the 14th. So Nisan 14 always was the beginning of Passover. And of course, it celebrated the ex- Exodus. And it celebrated that time when, when there was a sacrificial lamb, the spotless lamb was, was killed for the salvation of the people from Egypt. Remember, the, they took the lamb's blood and put it over the, the doorposts of their homes and the angel of death passed over them. So we get the word Passover. And they were saved. The Old Testament salvation story. Well, that was a feast that they celebrated. Then the very next day, uh, Nisan 15, on their calendars, again starting at Friday sundown to Saturday sundown, they they began the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which ran for a week. Now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, one of the things you did was you made sure you got rid of all leaven or yeast in your home because leaven in the Bible becomes symbolic of sin. So this is a way to symbolize God, we're trying to put away our sin. But it was also a time that you prayed for bread from the earth because the next holiday was going to be an agricultural one and celebrating the first fruits of, the first fruits of grain that came out of the, land, out of the ground. And so you're, you're praying in anticipation of that. Praying, God, give us bread from the earth. Well, the third of those feasts, the Feast of First Fruits, uh, actually wasn't on a specific day. It was always the Sunday after the first uh, celebration, the beginning of the celebration of unleavened bread, which was a Sabbath day always. Not, not just always a Sabbath day by the calendar, but a Sabbath day because it began a feast. And so the first Sunday after Unleavened Bread started, 
they celebrated the Feast of First Fruits. That could be several days, or in the case of, of Jesus' Passion Week, the very next day, Nisan 16. This started then Saturday at sundown and went through Sunday at sundown. And this particular feast was to give the first fruits of the barley harvest to God. The feast was based on the principle that God had established that everything belongs to him, and so they must give a first fruits of their harvest as an acknowledgement of thankfulness to God. But not just thankfulness, also trust. Because they were taking the first ripe fruit from their fields and bringing it to the temple. What happened if a storm comes the next day and wipes out everything else? They're without anything. So they're actually trusting God to bring the rest of the harvest. They bring the first fruits and they trust God to bring the rest of the harvest. So these three holidays, these three festivals, Passover, Unleavened Bread, and First Fruits, kind of became condensed into a 10-day festival, usually called Passover, sometimes called Unleavened Bread, which celebrated all of these feasts. Unfortunately, First Fruits kind of gets lost in the shuffle. Today, because First Fruits was an agricultural holiday and, and so largely tied with the growing season in the land of Israel, for the most part, Jews, most of whom don't live in Israel, don't celebrate the Feast of First Fruits anymore. It's agricultural. And that's really unfortunate because you can make the case that it might just be the most important of these festivals for Christians. Paul thought it was important, and Paul uses it as a way for us to understand Jesus' resurrection. So, what was first fruits? First fruits was an agricultural feast, but more than that, it was a feast based on the principle that God had established that everything belongs to Him. And so they must give the first fruits of their harvest, but also the first fruits of their animals, and in fact, the first fruits of their sons. So God said back when uh, that last plague where he plagued Egypt with the death of the firstborn sons, God says, now your sons belong to me. I saved them, I've redeemed them, they belong to me. And the intention uh, apparently was that they would serve in the tabernacle and in the temple for God. Now that changed because of the golden calf incident and the Levites who stepped forward at that point and at that point God says, okay, you're going to be the people that now are in charge of the temple. And so what the, the families would do is they would redeem the firstborn son on their, the first month of that child's life, they would go to the temple in Jerusalem and bring an offering for, to redeem their child back to, in a, in a sense, pay for the Levite that's taking his place and redeem the firstborn son. That's what Mary and Joseph are doing when they go to the temple with Jesus. So it's a principle of first fruits of everything that you give to God. It was also an acknowledgement of thankfulness to God for the gift of bread from the earth, that prayer that they prayed on the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And it was also an acknowledgement of trust, dependence on God for the rest of the harvest. So it was a two-way faith promise. We promise to trust God. He promises to take care of us with the rest of the harvest. And the offerings brought to the priests were a sheaf of barley, which was lifted before the Lord for all to see. 
So some of you are asking, how in the world does this relate to Easter? Paul says, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you. God made it very obvious for his people. This particular year, Jesus entered Jerusalem on Nisan 10. We call it Palm Sunday, but as we saw last Sunday, it was for the Jews, Lamb Selection Day. And Jesus walks into Jerusalem saying, Choose me as a sacrificial lamb for your sins. Then four days later, on Nisan 14, on Passover, he presents himself as that sacrificial lamb and dies. And on unleavened bread, when he died, of course, he was buried right before Sabbath, which was the start of unleavened bread. So that on unleavened bread, as that began, Jesus is in the tomb. He is, in a sense, bread in the earth. And then on, the next, then on first fruits on Sunday, Jesus is raised as bread from the earth. Let's explain that a little bit more. In a sense, Jesus has already hinted at what was happening in celebrating his Passover with the disciples. When he called the bread, my body, after giving thanks in the traditional Jewish way for God giving them bread from the earth. So at the Last Supper, again, after sunset, which was the start of the Passover, Jesus would have prayed, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam hamatzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, for giving us bread from the earth. After which he hands around the bread and says, this bread is my body. What's going on? Jesus has just told his disciples in a very Jewish way that he was going to be buried and raised. He is in essence saying, I'm the bread that God is going to bring from the earth. The next afternoon, Jesus was crucified, quickly buried before sunset on the Sabbath. So he's in the tomb for the day of unleavened bread. But just like the bread of the feast had to be without leaven, which symbolized decay. So Jesus' body sees not decay, as we just read in Psalm 16. We find also in Isaiah 53. And then on the third day, the Feast of first fruits began with the people thanking God for bread from the earth while the bread of life, Jesus, walks out of the tomb. Not just bread from the earth, however, Paul wants to connect this directly with this third feast. Paul says he is the first fruits of the resurrection. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep in him. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ the first fruits. And then when he comes, those who belong to him. You see it? Christ is the first fruits. The rest of the harvest is to come. Jesus' resurrection, Paul explains, is a guarantee and beginning first fruits of the final harvest. And that final harvest is the resurrection of all mankind. 
So even as the Feast of First Fruits was about the two-way promise, we trust God and He provides for us, Paul presents this as the very picture God wants us to see about our eternal salvation. God, like he did with the sacrificial lamb, remember God is the one who provided the lamb, we don't have to provide it ourselves, also provides the first fruit of the resurrection, Jesus. And we respond in faith to him, knowing that what he is doing is guaranteeing that the rest of the harvest, our resurrection, is sure to come. Just as surely as Jesus walked out of the tomb on Easter Sunday as the first fruits, the bread from the earth, so surely will we someday walk out of the tomb after him. That's what Easter is all about, Paul says. Jesus the Messiah provides an ironclad guarantee of our forgiveness, of our renewed relationship with God, and of our future resurrection when he rose from the dead as our first fruits. And so Paul presents to the Corinthians a very clear choice. He says, reject this. And our faith, our hope, our life are worthless, are hopeless. If Christ has not been raised, then the harvest, the resurrection, hasn't begun. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And our salvation is not assured. It says, if you reject this, all is lost. There is no hope in this world. But accept Christ's resurrection by faith. And our resurrection, our eternity, is guaranteed. Which will it be for us this Easter Sunday? Are you accepting Jesus as the first fruits, the guarantee of your resurrection and eternal life? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are not only the sacrificial lamb, but that you are the first fruits. That the Father guarantees our resurrection of the de- from the dead when he broke open death's hold on us through Jesus' resurrection. Help us to hold on to that for dear life. Help us to hold on to that for eternal life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.